the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Along with Brian Fromm, who's making a fish noise over there. Are you okay? <laughs> Was it <laughs> <I> really? <laughs> Do you, you're not aware that you're doing it? It's a holiday weekend. <laughs> coming. It's coming. Can I, can I recreate the sound that you yes. were just making? <laughs> That's probably not good for radio. I looked over at you and I was like, "What are you? What is happening?" People All right. are going to think that I have like just mental issues because I'm like, I didn't even know I was making that noise. That's funny. people. Like, I think we <laughs> my, probably think that about each other. Though, the, let's be honest. The person who is most like, yes, is my wife right now. <laughs> yes, somebody finally it, knows my pain. I've never asked you about this on air, but is it strange how much time you and I spend together talking about like pretty complicated issues? It is. Is there anyone else in your life that you spend this much time talking through stuff like this with? Uh, other than my wife, I would say the closest is because I'm in a smaller church. So I have like one other pastor. And, and you so, guys just spend a lot of like one-on-one so time. So the new guy, Scott, we're getting there. But Dave, before him, who I started the church with, we would spend a lot of time. But but even with him, even what you and I do is kind of going beyond that. Like, no, it is strange that we've, we know very little about each other's lives outside this radio booth. But right. we spend a lot of time together. I think we probably know more about each other's personal I lives think, than you think, though. Like, we, oh, that comes up a doubt. lot in conversation, right? 100%. 100%. In fact, so regularly, some of the feedback I get from people, which speaks well of us, our rapport together. Not to pat ourselves on the back. I but. just did. But people will be like, oh, you guys haven't been friends for a while? I'm like, I literally met him when we started doing this, like, a couple months before we started doing this show. Like, Which is weird. Not to, I, you know, this is probably not helpful or interesting in any way, shape, or form, but, like, we, you do kind of just jump in. You're yeah. like, all right, here's a radio studio. Here are two microphones. Talk. <laughs> talk about life for two hours. And we're like, we've never even had, like, coffee together. And then we go out, and, like, you know, the, the Friday show, and we're like, all right, have a good weekend. See you Monday. See you next week. <laughs> it, it is a strange it, arrangement. It, it, I almost just said the strange, like, we're talking like each other now. <laughs> we finish each other's sandwiches. I mean, I mean we, that's funny. Okay. People, uh, wait, that's from, hmm. Futurama? I don't know. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. Oh, now I'm going to think of it while you read this. Oh, boy. We... Oh, Frozen. Our producer told us. I to... <laughs> I've never seen Frozen, so where did I get it from? Are you kidding? Why is that weird? It's really good. But you have... Oh, listen, you have kids appropriate. We're going to burn the entire segment just talking about nonsense. Yep, yep. Okay. At what point do people just turn their radios off? They're like, okay, these guys aren't actually going to talk about anything. Two I'm minutes not... ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just me and you just hanging out. On a radio show. All right. So um, here's what I, I I'm going to just read until I can't read anymore. And then I'm going to pass it off to you to help bring us home. Okay. Mm-hmm. You ready? 
Here's the headline. An Alabama car dealership is giving away Bibles, flags, and 12-gauge shotguns in honor of 4th of July. <clears throat> Here we go. In an appeal to patriotism, a car dealership in Alabama is giving away Bibles, flags, and guns for a 4th of July special. From now until July 31st, Chatham Ford will offer customers a Bible, American flag, and a gift certificate for a 12-gauge shotgun when they purchase any new or used vehicle. In a promotional video titled, God, Guns, and Freedom, manager Kobe Palmer cocks a shotgun in front of a red truck with an American flag draped across the back. We're going to be celebrating July 4th a little bit differently this year, he said in the video posted to Facebook on June 19th. The promotion, a first for the dealership, is meant to honor the tiny town of Chatham, home to just over 1,200 people and its values, Palmer told CNN. We just wanted to show appreciation for some of the things that residents take pride in in this area, he said. Customers can't drive off the lot with the new gun, though. They must take their gift card to a participating firearms dealer to redeem it. What do you think? <laughs> the irony is that you and I did this as a like an end of the show crazy story last week, but so many Interweb people were insanity. sharing it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so many people have been sharing it and talking about it. We're like, well, let's deal with this as a real story. Uh First off, remember, they're trying to sell trucks. And so, you know, this is a promotional deal. But I would say. Uh, Are you trying to talk me off the ledge? Is that no, what you're doing? Okay. No, just putting out that disclaimer. Uh, I would say uh, this is is problematic. Let's just put it that way. I would say this is problematic for, for the following reasons. One, um, the glorification of guns. I've described to you before. I'm not a gun guy. I did not grow up around guns. Uh, so when people get really worked up about guns, I don't, I'm neither like pro or con. I don't get it is really what I'm saying. That's fair. But I would say the glorification of guns is really troublesome to me. And, and I'm glad for people to try to change my mind about that. But, um, whether you think guns are legal or not, or should be, it's this glorification of them. And that's what this is. This, this is a glorification of guns and that's problematic to me. But the bigger deal is, uh, is increasingly as Christians, our propensity to link uh, nationalism and our Christianity, I think, is dangerous. Hmm. Uh, to and this is going to happen around the Fourth of July. This this happens, right? But uh, was it's Robert Jeffers Church that does like the Freedom Sunday coming up, and it's this really weird worship gathering with flags and pol- it's just a weird meshing together, and yeah. so. I think regardless of how much you love America, friends out there, I love America. I love living here. Uh, I would not want to live anywhere else in the world. Uh, With that said, I know that America is not perfect. And it is this tying together of America and our Christianity, I think, is really dangerous. And I think a lot of times we don't realize we've done it. Yeah. And so that's what this is to combine not even the guns part, which I believe is its own issue but to combine god and freedom in some way like i don't know there is freedom is 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 another word for you know our love for our country we're all thankful for our freedoms but there's just there's a dangerous step here uh that i think is growing in our culture especially as a lot of evangelicals feel like the cultural culture is getting away from us a little bit Hmm. that it's like Tie our country to the flag. Try the flag to the cross. There's there there's a danger there that, uh, and this is coming from somebody who loves our country. Yeah, I get that. I I think everything you just said, uh, I agree with. The other thing that I find problematic is I feel like the Bible is being used as a prop here. Yep. Even if there was no like the gun, like flag, yeah. gun giveaway, no. even just the Bible, which you know, part of my brain wants to say, man, if Bibles are getting you know being given away, that should be a good thing. I think. But like you said, you know, when the flag and the cross hold hands, yeah. I think 
I th- I think uh, honestly, even just in Acts and Romans, we see that that can be really problematic. That you no, know, it almost always is problematic. And I realize that this isn't a culture that you and I were raised in. Mm-mm. So there's a lot of like embeddedness that I'm sure you and I don't get. Yep. But like that's exactly what you were saying. The the kind of nationalism that creeps in without us knowing it is sometimes the most dangerous. Yes. Like it's one thing, you know, because I imagine someone's listening right now and they're like, it's just a guy selling trucks. Yep. Leave him alone, yep. right? Why are you guys even talking about this? Yep. And I think that person may actually have a point like, okay, maybe it is just a guy and the best he knows is this and this. But I think what, what I want to always do with the show is to try and hit pause and say, is this pointing to something deeper or more problematic? Is, is it okay for the flag and the cross to hold hands and however that manifests. And I'm not saying anything that you're not saying like, yes, I I love our country. I'm so grateful for the men and women who have served to protect it. Like all of that's true. And yet, I think we have a responsibility as pastors, not yeah. necessarily as radio people, mm-hmm. but as pastors, uh, as ministers of the gospel to say, um, I, I have a very difficult time imagining Jesus giving away guns and Bibles as yeah. a giveaway for purchasing a vehicle. Yep, yep. And, and when I have difficulty doing that, I have to at least give pause. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and this one's a little ridiculous, but I mean, I would challenge some of you out there. If you let me ruffle some feathers, like I don't think it's appropriate when churches have American flags up in the front. Like, I think that's a melding together that is dangerous. And if you disagree with me, all that I would ask you is to is to wrestle with it. Why do you think it's appropriate? How are we going to structure our July 4th weekend Sunday gatherings this week? And what does that look like? Those become good indicators as to where these two may be melding together or not melding together. Right. No, I totally agree, man. Well, in the definition of right turns in the radio business <laughs> coming up next schools replace detention with meditation and it's actually creating incredible results. We're going to talk about that coming up next on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the common good radio show or 1160hope.com. Plus, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, legitimately, thank you for all you podcast listeners. If you like, subscribe, review, that stuff legitimately helps us out. It helps us kind of stay in the algorithm, stay in front of the eyes of the people who listen and get in front of more eyes. So uh, if you have a couple of seconds, that does somehow magically actually help us out. And uh, here's the headline I want to talk with you a bit about, Brian. It says, mm-hmm. school replaced detention with meditation, and it created incredible results. So I'm biased because I was homeschooled. So like <laughs> detention for me was more like being grounded yep. or more than real detention. But a uh, fun story before we dive in, I went to the public high school for like one or two. Um, what do you call them? Periods. Yes. <laughs> one or two periods for like stuff like that we days. could. <laughs> days. No stuff that I couldn't do at home, you know, like photography or chemistry or whatever. Yep. And in the grade above me, there was an Ian Simpson who had been cutting a lot of class. So I, I'm only there for an hour or two a day. They called me into the office and they said, uh, you must have been freaked out. Like what's what? They called me in. Right. And they said, uh, young man, you haven't been in fourth period for quite some time. And I'm, cause I'm a smart aleck. I was like, yeah, I also haven't been in first, second, fifth, sixth or seventh. Cause I don't really go to school here. And so, uh, they said, all right, smart Alex. So they brought me to detention. No way you got detention. And I got, I got, one hour I got one phone call. Like I was in prison I got one phone and call. I, I knew something was up. I knew it was a yeah. mix up. And, uh, I said, ma, this is what's going on. They think it's me. And they're trying to make me serve in school detention. And my mom goes, I'm sure you did something to deserve it. 
<laughs> and then hung up the phone. No <laughs> So way. I served in school detention for a day, uh, which honestly was sort of fun. Like it was an experience and I didn't, it, it didn't bother me that much. But I know that for a lot of kids, detention is like a pretty regular reality. And the school is apparently trying something different than sort of the traditional model yeah. of detention. What, what's going on here? Yeah. First, I want to know the end of that story. Did Ian Simpson eventually get caught? Did uh, he, he didn't get, get caught like two years later at a party. He pulls me aside and he's like, hey, man, thanks for taking the hit back there. No. <laughs> totally did. He was a cool guy, but it was like, maybe it wasn't two years, but it definitely yeah. was a while later. He was like, hey, thanks for taking the fall. Sorry you took the fall on that one, man. <laughs> he didn't say sorry. He said thanks. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this is, uh, as you said, this is a school in Baltimore called the Robert W. Coleman School. I did not say that. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a good point. You <laughs> said, good point. Did we mention that it's a uh, it's a holiday it's a week? Holiday week. Yeah. <laughs> so what they decided to do was to change their detention method. And any of you who've been in school, you know the way detention works, right? You you misbehave, you mi- cut too many classes, you disrespect the teacher, whatever else it might be, and you might have to serve detention after school or during lunch or whatever uh, whatever the school does. Uh, but they decided instead of detention to go for meditation, uh, they invite they introduced the mindful meditation room here. Meditation was used to calm and help students deal with anxiety and stress, thereby disciplining their mental thoughts. Uh, the school chose to break tradition and it seemed like a risky move. And so the article asks, did it work? Well, it turns out it did. The suspension rates in the school lowered significantly. Some of the students mentioned how the program changed their lives. For example, if they were taking a test, they would start taking deep breaths. Hmm. In the midst of noise, they would meditate to tune out all the noise and become uh, one with themselves. And it continues on and on and on. And it becomes an interesting kind of test case here of really it's a test case of traditional uh, methods and whether it be about um, punishment or other things and say, no, we're going to look at this a different way. Uh, and, and they are seeing some results. And so, uh, yeah, it would be interesting to know your thoughts on it. You could tell my background a little bit. Anytime I read something with meditation, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. Why, why are you? Oh, <laughs> because it was, it was, I remember somewhere along the way when I was young, learning that meditation was like, on par with new age theology and crystals and all of this and stuff. That's and that's still click clacking in your brain a little bit. You know, old habits die hard, man. Like all it is is really like breathing and like, yeah, right. And like clearing and your and mind being and being mindful. But, right? but I still, did you have that? I don't know if you had that or anything like it. No, the but. first church we went to was called Shalom house and we sat on pillows. So <laughs> there you uh, go. Not yeah, the same issues. No, 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 no. But I find this interesting. They're saying, is detention, is suspension, these types of things, the best way to produce the result? And that becomes interesting for schools. That becomes an interesting discussion for parenting. That becomes an interesting discussion uh, for things like incarceration and other things. Yeah. Really, do we do things because that's how we've always done them? Or do we look for uh, new methods if they may work better? Yeah, and I think uh, it is, it's hard because when you're, when you're in the midst of looking for new methods, part of the risk, I imagine, is you don't know if it will work better. Yep. Part of the benefit of history, you know, we can look back and say this was a clearly good decision because look at the results. I, I think it's way it's way more difficult in the midst of it because I, I imagine there are people listening like meditation. What kind of soft punishment is that? Yep. You know, like I, I could see the posture being, well, that's never going to work if this school is truly a case study. Uh, I think it's worth thinking about. Like I, I know it's not the same, but I have a you know a year and a half old at home, 
And one of the Daniel Tiger songs that we've been using with him, if I may sing it for you. (laughs) Please. Are you ready? Yes. Uh, When you're feeling mad and you want to roar, take a deep breath, then count to four. Uh One, two, three, four. So my little boy, like, really only has a couple of words in his repertoire anyway. But when he's, like, throwing a fit, we'll both crouch down low. When you're feeling mad and you want to roar, take a deep breath. That's awesome. He'll legitimately go, then count to four. And then you count to four. And it's not a catch-all, but he's legitimately calmer. And I have to believe that at some level, I'm giving him skills to better cope with anxiety and stress in the future rather than just snapping at him and saying, hey, stop it, stop crying, yeah, yeah. stop freaking out, which in you know we all do as parents. Like I'm not saying we model this perfectly. I do sometimes feel like detention is sort of like the school's version of that snap parenting, like, all right. Go to the principal's office. Like yep. we just sort of make this and some kids are just being punks. Like I totally get it. I get that high schoolers are different than toddlers, yeah. but the, this response, this knee jerk response, or this maybe antiquated response to just go lock them in a room somewhere and tell them to shut up for a couple of hours. Maybe there actually is a better use of that time to not only deal with the conflict there, but to give them healthy anger management skills for the future. Because I mean, we definitely know 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds that still haven't learned to deal with their anger. Right. Yes. But what if we actually started to teach our students at this stage how to manage that better in the future? Yeah. And what I, what the article doesn't tell us is, did they do away with things like detention altogether? Or is it like, no, we think this method would be best for this kid while, you know, this kid needs some tough punishment and tough love. We've yeah. already tried the meditation thing with this one. So the next step, I don't know. I don't know those details. What I do respect is, like you said, the easiest thing to do is always to do things the way you've always done them. Yeah, totally. Uh, whether it be parenting or government or uh, schools. And, and so to be like, hey, let's try to think outside the box for something that could provide a better solution. Right. I think that's admirable. And, you know, I can hear people probably be like, oh, a bunch of snowflakes, you know, we're not going to give them the tough love anymore. But, you know. Maybe that hasn't proven to work over the years, or maybe it doesn't work for every kid. And so, you know, I applaud a, a, a school or an organization going, let's try to always evaluate, rethink, and see if there are better ways to go about to produce the results we're trying to produce. Yeah, I imagine, too, somebody maybe even listening right now, like, pay attention to your body. Are you are you clenching your jaw right now? Mm. Are your shoulders all tense right now? Like, pay attention to your, like, what if wherever you're sitting at right now, you just, like, put everything down? And like took like two deep breaths in and out. Like anytime anyone's ever challenged me to do that in the middle of the day, I start to realize like, oh, my leg's been tapping for an hour. Everything is kind of tense in my hands. Like I can feel it behind my eyes. Like there, there's, there's a lot, there doesn't even need to be conflict for us to be in stress. Right. And I think to help our kids better understand like, hey, sometimes my, my wife can attest to this because she taught CPS for a while. These kids were manifesting as really disobedient. Come to find out there was some really horrific stuff going on in their family. So what if rather than just perpetuating this really kind of punitive model of discipline, we said, Hey, I recognize that you feel like you're drowning right now Mm -hmm. and you can trust me. And as your teacher or as your friend or as your pastor, like I'm going to help you walk through this Mm. rather than just simply like go to the office or go to your room. Like I'm not saying those aren't, ever the right decision, but it would be helpful, I think, to your point, to maybe step back and look at some of our methodology and yep. ask, I wonder if there's a better way to do this. I think that's true all the time. Let's, totally. Let's reevaluate methodology to get the best result. Totally agree. All right, coming up next, lawmakers introduce a bill to make adoption more affordable. Thank God. We're going to talk mm. about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Mm. 
I wish you all could see the face that Brian That's not a noise right I now. expected to hear it <laughs> You looked up like a toddler that just got caught. I was like, whoa. Doing something he wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> oh, man. I really wish this was, uh, this was Facebook Live right now. Anywho. Uh, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com. I, uh, I teased it up a little bit. Lawmakers introduced a bill to make adoption more affordable, and uh, I am for this through and through. I, I know a number of families who have gone through grueling hoops and hurdles to finally get to the finish line of adoption, and every single time I'm, I'm with families that are going through that, I think, why? Why are we making this so difficult? Yes. And I realize there's a whole lot about this that is way, way over my head. But I also realize that, like, it seems pretty clear that the process in general to to get a kid to a loving family is way too long, way too tedious, and way too expensive. What's going on here? Yeah, because it says, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, I never realized this, about one-third of all adopted children live in families with annual household incomes at or below 200% of the poverty level. Whoa. They said it's a common misconception that only wealthy families adopt. We must do all we can to ensure that all children are afforded the opportunity to grow up in a permanent loving home. This legislation is a common uh, a common sense approach to improve lower income families ability to adopt and support children from foster care. Yeah, man, this is, this is wonderful. Like you, like you said, you would hope that we as a country uh, could get to the point where, where finances are not the barrier to adopting, but we've all seen people, uh, you know, the GoFundMe pages that go and the tens of thousands of dollars that need to be raised in order to cover all the adoption expenses. And again, we understand why, like things cost money, you know, systems cost money, all this sort of stuff. But Man, especially in in the in the Christian world where we're speaking out so much against abortion and we've got to, you know, we want babies to be born. Well, if babies are going to be if unwanted babies are going to be brought into the world, then we need to figure out a way that they are more easily wanted. They are more easily taken care of. They are more easily adopted. And it does no child good to just stay in the foster care system. They need to be in permanent loving homes. And so. It, you know, it's it's good that this is a bipartisan bill. Uh, and, man, I hope this goes through. I hope adoption becomes much more affordable for families that want to take that that huge uh, and really important step. When I, I did a little bit of research, too, it looks like the cost of adopting just in the United States is between eight and forty thousand dollars. And that's just for like attorney fees. That's like not working with an agency. I didn't realize this, that over 100,000 children in the United States alone are waiting for adoption into a family who can give them a loving home. Yeah. Over 100,000. That's crazy. That's that's such such an enormous number. And I wonder why you think uh, that the church doesn't seem to be at the forefront of this quite as much as it could be, particularly given some of the explicit instruction to care for orphans and widows. Yeah. Like, why do you think this issue that is right under our noses uh, is talked about so infrequently? Oh, I, that's a good question. I thought you were going to ask, why are there not more adoptions going on within the church? I think that it's talked about infrequently. Um, you know, I think it depends on the church, right? Some churches talk about this a lot. This is their big deal. Others don't, but I just think adoption's really hard. Foster care is really hard. Adoption's really hard, not just because of expense, but man, everybody, not everybody, but most people I know who have actually adopted, uh, people in my life that I know of who have gone through the adoption process, it really complicates their life. And usually, yeah. usually life's harder after the adoption is over. That's true. 
And and so why don't we, you know, I read somewhere a stat once that if every church adopted one kid, like all kids would be adopted. Uh, but it's, you know, I don't even think it's that many, to be honest. Probably I don't not even think that, you say 100,000. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it's just such it, it is. You know, I think sometimes we romanticize adoption like, oh, just take these babies into your home. And it's really hard. It's really hard. And it's really complicated. And uh, it's, you know, again, it's not an issue that's right in front of us at all times. And so uh, that's why probably some a lot of churches don't end up talking about it that much. There's an organization that uh, we've partnered with, actually, both my current church and my previous church called Safe Families. We did, too. And uh, you can learn more, actually, at safe-families.org. And that actually is a brilliant sort of dip a toe in the waters because there's kids with needs. Some are like a couple of days, some are a couple of weeks, some are a couple of months. And and they're not, uh, I mean, sometimes it's because the parent is, you know, they had an overdose, but sometimes they like broken arm and they can't, you know, really watch after their kids. And it gives the church a really tangible opportunity to come alongside mm-hmm. families in need to, in a lot of ways, prevent these kids from having to go to foster care by just, hey, could you just, if you could take care of my kid for like the next three weeks, yep. that would help me kind of get above water a little bit. And I don't know, that just seems to me like such a beautiful opportunity yeah. for the church, like in its own backyard to say, hey, we know that families are hurting. Here's an organization that's really credible and does all the legwork of networking and background checks and all the other things associated, I think, often keep people from participating in this way. And yeah. I, I don't know, man, like it's, I'm saying all these things, but I've never adopted anybody. I, yeah. Right. Like I've never, that. and again, we have two little ones at home, so you could maybe make that case too. But like, I'm living in this weird, even as we're talking about it, like, wow, what a great need. And how little have I, A, heard the church talk about it and B, felt this conviction in my own heart to actually do something about that. And I, I don't know. I just find that really curious. It, it is hard. And I think it's, you know, I'm not trying to give us all excuses, but a little bit of it is we get very self-absorbed, right? When, when we're reminded of the foster care need and the adoption need, a lot of us go, yeah, I want to do something about that. And then, you know, Tuesday happens and Wednesday happens and, you know, and you've got two little ones in your house. You're not really at a spot to like, th- and so I don't mean to make that as an excuse that's legitimate. It's just an excuse that's that's the reality. But uh, but you do begin to realize that uh, that there are real cost barriers to adoption. And so, yes, churches can step in there. Churches can be supporting people in their church. I love when I hear churches like we're going to come alongside people so that it's not a money driven decision, but we're instead going to help them do it. Uh, but man, the, the federal government can do a lot more than individual churches can. Let's just be honest. And so to see a bill like this with tax credit and uh, other things, it really uh, it makes me hopeful. Like I hope that like that we read so many things where we're like, what's our government doing? How dumb's our government <laughs> that when you read this one, you're like, yeah, all right, that's great. Let's do that. So. So what do you think is a way forward then for someone listening that's like, yeah, you know what? I've never even given any of us any thought at all, like apart from, hey, we should be praying for kids that need to be adopted. Like what's a what's another way that we could actually engage even like at a at a dip a toe in the water level, you think? Yeah, I think at some level you educate yourself like. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm like looking at stats right now. Right it's yeah. mind boggling. Even the one that you said, hundred thousand children. If you had asked me before reading this article, how many children? I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. Hmm. Uh, and so, but yeah, go to your, go to the leadership of your church. If you're part of a church and ask them point blank, what are we doing to enter into the adoption world and the foster care world? How can we as a church do something? I think the answer is always smaller than we think. Like we want to be like, 
we're going to change the whole foster care system. Well, you're probably not, but hmm. but what could you do? Part of it could be rallying people you're close to or rallying your church and and start it. I think that's a good way to dip your toe in the water. And and again, if I could, I mean, they're you know they're not a sponsor of the show or anything, but Safe Families is an organization that I really stand behind. And if you're even remotely interested, uh, they'll bring people out to your church or your community to actually educate you, give you resources, help you sign people up. You can go to Safe dash families.org even just to learn more there's all sorts of videos and statistics and at the very least uh like let your heart be stirred a yes. little bit my buddy started an organization called love moves us and that's for families who have already adopted or are helping work in the foster care system and are feeling totally overwhelmed uh love moves dot us mm. they're doing uh incredible work in chicagoland actually to build networks support networks to help people to keep from drowning who have already made this decision and are feeling like, Oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do from right. here, which is I think uh, probably half the battle for people who are feeling like, I don't know that I really want to, I don't know that I want to go there. Yeah. Well, coming up next, uh, Leonard sweet tweeted something pretty fascinating about church attendance that I think will surprise most, if not all of you. We're going to talk about that coming up next on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone how you doing it's good pal ian <laughs> with brian that's just looking at me wondering what's he doing what is going on here i like when you start it like it's almost like you're expecting some feedback from the people out there who can't actually talk to you like hey how are you and like you kind of pause <laughs> you ever had a conversation with someone like that where you like ask them a question and they're just not giving you anything he's gonna stare at you and you're like yeah. oh that was a question okay i guess i'll keep talking <laughs> are you a nervous talker like if the person that you're with is really quiet will you yes. just keep filling the silence Yes. And I don't know that I'm a nervous talker. So I will do that. I had a good buddy who, who, you know, when people mock you, they're lovingly pointing things out about you. I'm fully you. aware of people mocking me. And so <laughs> uh, he, he pointed out to me and now I can only, I hear it all the time is like, if there were like four of us in here, we were talking and then it got quiet. Like, he's like, you'll just start like humming or like, oh, like, like humming a song or tapping your foot, <laughs> like making some sort of noise. And then and now that's all I hear. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do kind of do that. So. I think that is nervousness, not to psychoanalyze. Yeah. I think that to some level is like, I don't unease. Like, I don't yeah. like it being quiet. Yeah. Here. That's funny. Funny slash interesting slash. We'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> all right. So Leonard Sweet, who's uh, pretty active on Twitter. I did not realize that. Uh, tweeted this a couple of days ago. He said 15 years ago, 40 percent of church members attended four times a month, which is mind boggling to me. Let me just say that again. 15 years ago. 40% of church members attended four times a month. That's crazy. In 2018, only 10% attended four times a month, a 37% drop in worship attendance. So you could have the exact same membership uh, church on Sunday mornings. It looks like you've lost over a third of your members. Yep. I feel like I stumbled somewhere in there. So you could have the exact same membership church and on Sunday mornings, it looks like you've lost over a third of your members. So the idea is the, is the topic of regularity. It's actually something mm -hmm. that we talk about, agonize over a good deal at community. I don't know if you're having the same conversations at Absolutely. Four Corners. You are? Yeah. And what conclusions have you drawn? Do you find this to be true? Is this? I think this is 100% true. The most really? surprising part to me is that 15 years ago, 40% of church members attended four times a month. Yeah, that seems bonkers. And he doesn't cite any sources, by the way. I'd love to know where he's getting this data from. Yeah. But there's, there's no there's no citations. But sure, sure. Why, why do you think this trend is uh, is so pervasive? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I think there's probably a couple of reasons. One is just general busyness. Uh, general our, busy, busyness? Busyness, okay. yes. Our culture doesn't uh, value Sunday morning. Like mm. our culture as a whole. Case in point, I've told you m multiple times about 
uh, whether it be our kids' schools or whether it be sports or whatever else. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, they even if they did things on Sunday morning, it would be like or on Sundays, it'd be like one in the afternoon. Right? right. There was this general understanding people went to church on Sunday morning. That's mm. that is gone now. Mm. That is gone. And now you're so you're battling a lot of different things for your attention on Sunday morning. And, you know, so sometimes people choose church. Sometimes they don't. Uh, two, I think that this is probably a little bit of the devaluing of the church uh, gathering. Right. Like huh. I can listen to lots of preachers online. I can listen to two guys talk on a radio on my way home from school, uh, work. I can listen. <laughs> I can listen to worship music in the car. It's a it's a loss of an understanding of why we gather in the first place. And some of that's on us as churches like. I don't know. I don't mean this to sound so consumeristic as it's going to come across, but is it <laughs> is it worth our people's time to be there every week or mm. or do they leave there going? I probably could have. And it doesn't mean we have to entertain them. That's not what I'm suggesting. I think but the worth is a good a good framing for that question, though. Is it worth their time? And, you know, church was just the gathering of church was so much more at the uh, inner circle of community, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Um 15 years ago seems like a short time ago. I would have said this is true like 30 years ago. I was going to say, you planted not long after 15 years, 10 right? years ago, years but ago. I was doing church work 15 years ago. Isn't that wild? Yeah, but now, you know, when I was growing up, uh, so say 30 years ago, uh, we literally never missed church. Oh, yeah, same. Ever. Same. We never missed church. And when we were on vacation, we went to church. Like, it was that kind of thing. And that's why, like, when I read stats like this, man, I I have a hard time getting mad at people. Like, why don't these people come more? All right. <laughs> I'm just going to put my cards on the table and be yeah, really honest. Let's do it. I think if I didn't work at a church, I wouldn't go four times a month. Oh, I don't. snap. And why? I, why? Why do you think that is? I mean... I'm not sure how many months right now I go four times a month. <laughs> Aren't you employed by the church? That's what I mean. <laughs> but like, you know, when we go on vacation, we don't go to church or when I, I just think that. Yeah. All right. That's but fair. also part of it is this busyness that I was just talking about, like soccer and baseball and stuff. Don't get me wrong. Church would be a priority in my family's life. It, mm. I just don't think we would go. I don't think it would be a black and white, hard and fast thing that we're there every single week. Yeah. And so I, I have a hard time, like, uh, <laughs> when I read these, I, I have a hard time getting, like, really, like, angry at the, uh, the those people. Because I'm like, oh, I oh, can yeah. see how you can end up like that. Yeah, anger is not my response at all. It is curiosity, though. Like, yep. why was this, even just a decade and a half ago, seen so much more as a priority? Like, I just sort of I did a little bit of research, and I found this one article kind of addressing church leaders. And this these were the five challenges they gave. Uh, raise the expectation of membership. Require an entry class for membership, encourage ministry involvement, uh, offer more options for worship times, uh, monitor attendance of each member. And I read those. And I go, yeah, we do. We do a lot of those. I don't think those are the fix, actually. Like, mm-hmm. I don't and, I, and I'm not going to mention who wrote the article. I, I don't I don't mean to knock it. But I think that to me is those are surface solutions yeah. to a much deeper rooted issue. And I, I don't even know that I'll necessarily say problem. That's why I think yeah. I, it, the, the, the idea that um this is an issue and a trend that we're seeing for me is part of what we talked about a couple of months ago about like, well, the future of the church is all digital. So don't yeah. worry about the physical space. And I'm like, oh, I don't buy that at all. I think the physical space, the, the ministry incarnate, I think that's always going to matter. Um, I think your question to, is it worth it is a haunting one. Yeah. Um, I also think 
part of the responsibility of the church is to help reframe, refocus and recalibrate what are our priorities. Correct. Like the husband who is a workaholic and never sees his kids. He he's not. What he's saying is by his habits that being at home with my family isn't worth it. Mm -hmm. And we can't just step back and say, well, you have a different worth structure than others. (laughs) Like, nope, you're going to lose your family if you don't prioritize differently. So the fact that people maybe don't see it as, quote, worth it. Um, that should, I think, convict us a little bit, right? Like if the whole goal is just to entertain, maybe just to tickle some ears like that, that can't be the priority. But if the gathered people, this like sacred ancient gathering does something to our souls and is a part of our, it's integral to our formation in a way that like a podcast or sermon notes or a worship album aren't like, how do we, how do we elevate that significance without it feeling self-serving? Like, and we need you to come more regularly, right? Like, how do you do that? I, that's that's the hard one, man, because like I said, the cultural um, trends are going completely in the different direction. And I do think the answer, how do we make it more worth it, is probably lies in it being less of a passive engagement. Hmm. Um, but that's really difficult to pull off and that's really difficult to navigate. Right. Like we're all used to doing church where they sit, we speak, we sing, they go. And that's where that passivity to it, it becomes, well, what are, they're not even going to notice if I'm not here. Oh, interesting. And um, so there does come this passivity. Like I'm, all I can tell you, man, is like, I can, I have a smaller church where you are, you know, when people aren't there and there's mm. this kind of inherent, like you'll be recognized. And I can still tell you that there are people in my church who I can, I'm pretty confident of taking the summer off <laughs> <laughs> the whole summer. I think so. Huh. Well, we're, we're only a month in, but I, yeah, I've got that sense. And it reminds me of Rick Warren, man, uh, he, Rick Warren, much bigger church, right at, at Saddleback. Uh, I remember reading an article five years ago where he said they have begun to define regular attenders to Saddleback church as once a month. No, that's a regular attender once a month. And so wow. I was blown away by that. I would say the most regular attenders of my church are probably three times a month tops. Oh, that's interesting. That's my guess. Well, either way, I think it's important for us to continue to elevate with Definitely. grace. Like, hey, there's something sacred and important to the physical gathering and to keep leaning in and say, hey, we're not looking to guilt to shame, but we, we desire this for you because it's important to the growth and formation of your heart. Mm. I think is uh, that's always a good challenge. Well, coming up next, the E word, why many avoid it and how we can reimagine it. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. How you doing? No, 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 not the rest of them. How are you doing? Be honest. <laughs> It's okay. It's just me and you. How are you feeling? What's going on? I want to on? do a whole show of just your welcomes. Just my... <laughs> like, mine are always the same. Welcome back to The Common Good. You can find us here, and you're like, hey, everybody, what's no, up? I'll tell you how you say it. Do you want to know how you say it? I, I think you're going to tell me one way or the other. I, I won't if you don't want me to. I do. I want, are you ready for it? Yes. Constructive <clears throat> criticism right. in, no, with no, all of no, our no. It's not a criticism. It's just a mirroring. All I'm gonna, it's just an impersonation, <laughs> and I'll withhold all judgment uh, and critique. Ready? Re- I think I am. <laughs> I think I am. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good! Uh, yes. <laughs> like you're hiking a football. Like it's, uh, 
when no. somebody's <laughs> hiking, it's like we're starting the play. That's true. That's not that's not bad actually. And I never say I've, I've from listening back. It's never like, hey, I'm Brian Fromm, and with Ian. It's always like alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian. Fromm. Like it's the here same. we go. Right, right. Well, you're the you're the straight man I, in this operation. That's and, the and you are. I'm whatever. <laughs> Whatever that the opposite isn't. of the straight right, man. Right. The wiggly man. Uh, all right. So I teed it up. Going to get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. If we haven't gotten in trouble yet, I don't Anyway. So uh, <laughs> the E word, why many avoid it and how we can reimagine it. It's by Ed Stetzer. And I don't think the E word is Ed, by the way. I don't. I don't <laughs> we, we it might tr- be. <laughs> we were trying to guess what the E word is. <laughs> well, that's what I try to do before I read these. Like. Yep. Good headlines do kind of draw you in, but if you already know what the whole thing's about, then you're like, ah, okay. So I actually read it and I was like, the E word. I, I kind of started rifling through, like, what could this possibly be about? So those that are listening wondering, okay, but tell us, what is it actually about? Brian Fromm, why don't you fill us in? Yep, the E word is evangelism. Oh, so Stetzer says, I get it. Stetzer says, if we are honest, we must say that in many senses, we've lost our imagination passion and direction for evangelism we need to put evangelism back into our imagination and later on he says truth be told people are more likely to make fun of evangelistic methods than actually engage in evangelistic practices and he says what's amazing is uh, that people in our culture are willing to have uh, spiritual conversations. In fact, research he writes has shown that 78% of people who don't attend church would be willing to engage in a faith conversation if asked. The stats tell us that the good that the good news may, in fact, be news that people are actually looking for. What and, a novel idea. And so Stetzer is trying to say here is that much the way Jesus said in the Gospels, uh, the harvest is plentiful, uh, right? Who's going to go out and, and do the work, essentially? And doesn't involve a clipboard on a beach. <laughs> well, see, this, this is why I underlined people are more likely to make fun of evangelistic methods. <laughs> is that in there? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. And so he says what we need to do is reimagine evangelism. Things that worked in the past likely will not work today, i.e. Mm. clipboards on a beach. Oh, right. The first person I witnessed to, he writes, was my dad. Forty years ago, he says, I was a brand new Christian. I went home and said, Dad, are you saved? He answered, saved from what? And I said, I don't know, but you need to be. <laughs> So he said, we must reimagine evangelism by asking missional questions. Evangelism is telling people about Jesus. Mission includes understanding them before we tell them. And so uh, this is this is uh, this is Rick Richardson being here a week or two ago. Right. right. It is. He, in fact, wrote a book called Reimagining Evangelism that I would highly recommend. Yep. Um, I think it's called You Found Me. No, no. He wrote a former book of his. An older book is Evangelism Reimagined or something. But um I, I love what Stetzer is saying here, and it's really convicting because so much of our church culture now is like, hey, you need to show people you love them. You need to get to know people first before you talk about Jesus, that we never get to the point of actually talking about Jesus. Mm. And Stetzer is saying you need to be missional in a sense of people need to know that you care. You need to be in people's lives. You need to be building relationships but at some point, you've got to introduce the words, uh, the name of Jesus and and talk about it. Uh, and I think his point is people are looking for those conversations. They're looking for that sort of good news in their life. Uh, and that increasingly, we as Christians are unwilling hmm. uh, to go down that road. Okay, so the whole article hinges on these two statements in my mind. Okay. He says, we must reimagine evangelism by asking missional questions. If you're listening, you're like, okay, what are missional questions? He says, evangelism is telling people about Jesus. 
mission includes understanding them before we tell them. Mm. So historically, like you and I were saying, we both were uh, raised in tradition that encouraged us, you know, and I, and for better or for worse, there's definitely some growth from that. But we would, you went to the beach. I didn't live near a beach. So I went to like carnivals yeah. or malls with a yep. clipboard yep. and you, yep. you just walked up to strangers and asked them if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Mm-hmm. Which at, at some level feels like a noble cause, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to cut through all the garbage your soul is at risk. Yep. Here's the question. Part of what Stetzer is proposing is evangelism coupled with, with a good missiology seeks to better understand not only the context, but the person within that context, which takes time. Like you can't just I, you know, read stats about a person and then jump at them with a clipboard. Yep. I think it, it requires relational equity. I think part of what he's saying is in some circles, the pendulum swung so far that we'll spend 50, 60 years building relationships and then we never actually get to the Jesus stuff. Right? That's right. Like, I'm, I'm, it's relational evangelism. He's right. like, yes, do that. Right. Be relationally intelligent. But at the end of the day, to be an evangelist, to evangelize, the good news is a declaration at some point uh, of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and doing. And I think that we miss that part. And I certainly am susceptible to that. People are sometimes surprised, I think, to learn that pastors can struggle in this area as much as anybody. Absolutely. Do you ever feel that like tug, like on a plane ride? You're like, I think I'm supposed to talk to this person. I really don't want to talk to this nope. person. Yeah. Like, isn't that humbling? You're like, this Absolutely. is my, I literally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional pastor. Right. And in this environment, I'm kind of getting sheepish about sharing my faith. Like, what do, what do we, what should we do with that? Uh, I think on that sense, it's an acknowledgement that we as pastors are no different than other people, right? Like mm. evangelism can still be difficult. Uh, but man, you make such a great point about I'm fully in, in agreement with the concept of relational evangelism and asking missional questions and building relationships. That's why I just loved talking to Rick Richardson the other day. I'd yeah, encourage seriously. you to go find the podcast, find his book. Uh, what'd you say? It's called You Found Me, right? You Found Me. Yep. And, Fantastic. Uh, because Rick could tell stories. He told us stories. He's not just an author about evangelism. Right. The guy breathes it and lives it. And he's telling stories about, uh, right, the, the couple in his... Uh, uh, in his apartment complex or uh-huh. his condo complex, he basically said, we've been loving on them. We entered into their pain. And then we told them about Jesus. Like he, he, he finishes that progression with each of these that he talks about. Uh, and, and I would say if we're never willing, it's not an all or nothing deal. Like it's not like either I go and walk on the beach with a clipboard or I don't evangelize at all. Yeah. Right. Like there's a better way in the middle. And I, I don't know, man, I, I think that, if if we're not willing to get to the point where we're willing to ask people the hard questions and have the 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 conversation that could be uncomfortable in the start like that often evangelistic conversations are a little uncomfortable if we're not willing to go down that road then it, you know i the reasons either i off the top of my head is either fear or we don't fully believe that people need to hear about Jesus, and b- both of those are problematic. Well, and again, you mentioned it, the stats, the uh, the link there that research has shown that 78% of people who don't attend church be willing to engage in a faith conversation if asked. 78% mm. is an insane number. It actually links to uh, another article that he wrote entitled, The Problem with the Harvest uh, is not the harvest. <laughs> uh, like, it, and it's a pretty convicting piece about like, hey, it's not it's not a drive by guilting of you know Christian. You need to be doing this. Uh, in fact, later in the summer, we're gonna we're gonna launch a series called uh, How to Bless Your Neighbor, and the bless is the bless acronym. B begin with prayer, right. listen, eat, serve, and then story. And then yeah. we found that to be so helpful because it takes some of the some of the fear out of like, oh gosh, why just walk on their they just walk up to the door and rap on their window and yeah. say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Like giving people tools and resources to how to, 
how to do this in a way that is actually mindful of the culture, yeah. mindful of people, but still has, you know, some grit to it. It still has some courage to it. And I think finding that I love that. I love this idea of reimagining it, right? You're not yeah. changing the content, but maybe the packaging changes. And I had a professor that always talk about like, what's the, what's the packaging today? It doesn't have to be, maybe it shouldn't be what it was in the sixties and seventies yep, yep. and eighties. And how can the church like identify some of the sacred cows in our midst and say, Hey, we need to keep doing this, but the ways that we've been doing it, actually those times have changed mm. and for everyone not to freak out that the times have changed, you know? Yeah. And I think that the words, uh, Paul's words of do the work in, of an evangelist are still true. And Jesus's words about the harvest being plentiful uh, and to pray for the, for to rise up those who will work the harvest is still true. Yeah, and uh, and we are a go <laughs> we are a going faith, right? Go and make disciples. And so I do think how we evangelize is a great conversation to have. Do we evangelize is not uh, is not up for debate. Yeah, that's well said, man. All right, coming up next, I want to talk about Hillsong a little bit, but not maybe in the ways that you would imagine. I had a friend. Uh, write me and she was saying I have a hard time with this idea of a worship concert mm. of people paying tickets for a worship experience what what do we do with that tension we're going to talk about that coming up next on the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Oh, I didn't do a fun intro. No, I like it. You can't give it to him all the time. You can't give him fun all the time? Not all the time. Just stick with straight show business? Sometimes. Right over the plate. Yep. Hello. Hello, listeners. <laughs> My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is here as well. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. We also have an app. We don't talk about the app enough. Uh-uh. You can also stream us. So if you're like just driving through Chicago accidentally picking up the station uh there is an am 1160 app you can listen to us all the time wherever you'd like or you could stream us and uh, we have podcasts if you like and subscribe and review that legitimately does help us out a lot really really appreciate it and uh i i love to one of the things about this show that's so fun is the stuff that we talk about are things that we're already talking about yeah like it's just conversations that we're having and i actually had a friend write me and she said uh, hey here's a topic idea worship band concerts Hillsong came recently, and I struggle with the concept, uh, paying money to see something like this, and if it's really worship. Mm. And I thought, okay, that actually is a really interesting concept. She doesn't live in the state, uh, but Hillsong was actually recently here in Chicago, and I don't know if you went or had friends that went, but my newsfeed yeah. was blowing up with pictures and videos. I'm like, oh, we're at Hillsong. Did you know anybody that went to the Hillsong I don't concert? think recently. I, I know people who have gone in the past, though, for sure. And I've never gone. Have you been to like a big, massive like worship tour experience? Mm-hmm. Before? Never? No, but I, honestly, sometimes I'm like, well, that looks like it'd be awesome. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah, that's a whole it's a whole thing. It's a whole production. Yeah. And I think uh, kind of at the root of her question is what do we make of s- some of the, uh, I don't know, can I call it capitalistic nature of sure. like worship bands and worship albums and worship tours? I'll add a bunch of caveats yep. because one, I know that this is their profession mm-hmm. Two, I know that like through touring and selling records uh, is how they make their money. Three, I also recognize that a lot of these musicians are rooted in a local church expression, which I do really appreciate. I think sometimes, especially in preacher world, it starts to get a little wonky for me when they're no longer associated with a local body or denomination. Like they start to just, hey, I have this thought about this doctrine. You're like, but you're not rooted in any tradition, any like line of thinking at all now. Um, So I do appreciate some of those things. But then at the same token, I really get what she's saying. Hey, it's this 30,000 person arena. And we all paid $80 a ticket. 
Um, where's wh- that money going? What, one, where's money? it going? Right. But I think the subtext for her, too, isn't just where's it going, but can we, should we really be calling that worship? Is the yes. idea even of a worship concert um, congruous? Can those kind of coexist together? And I would love to know, just off the top of your dome, your thoughts. Yeah, it is one that I've struggled with before. Everything from worship concerts to, you know, you turn on a radio station locally here. Uh, I hit it on the other day and and the person came on and they were like, uh, bring you worship today. And it was like this whole hmm. kind of button. You were like, OK. Oh, the guy actually used the phrase helping you get your worship on. And I was like, I don't okay. love that. Yeah. And so part of it does go back to a theology of worship. What does it mean when we say worship and all of us? Uh, pastors hopefully end up pointing people back to Romans 12 and talking about uh, our lives being worship. It's worship's not about singing, but singing is part of it. And that's what we're talking it's about. Part here. Of it, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I wish I had a better answer except to say that it does make me feel uncomfortable this, um, but it doesn't mean it isn't without its, its benefits. I'm sure people going to this concert are singing the songs and, you know, having an experience that's positive and can they come to understand things about God through this? Sure. Absolutely. Um, but there's something how you're going to help me put, you're going to help me put a finger <laughs> on it because there's something, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about it. What do you think it is? Oh, I was hoping you'd answer that. I'm for so, me. Well, I don't know what makes you uncomfortable about it. It might be it. the money. It okay. might be the money. It might be, but they couldn't do it for free. I understand no. that. I understand that. I'm not saying any of these are going to be right answers or make okay. sense. It might be the money and the merchandising. It might be um, a lot of what already makes me uncomfortable about big mega church kind of showy. Yes. I guess Uh, that might make me uncomfortable. Like, um, yeah, I wonder if back in the, you know, 17, 1800s, if they were having hymn concerts. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, there certainly is good record of the types of singing gatherings that are Absolutely. having, though, which Absolutely. would employ, I imagine, the technology of the time. Like, right. even just at Yellow Box, you know, like based on my previous experiences, Yellow Box is is way bigger than anything I'm used to. But we also host conferences, you know, yep. from touring groups, and they'll sometimes kind of poke fun at us, like you only have this many smart lights or whatever. Like, it really is all relative, That's you know. Like, so based on my experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, we had friends that did an internship with us from Nairobi uh, Bible Chapel in Kenya, and they're like, oh, this is like a this is a teeny tiny campus. This for them was, you know, based on really? yeah, based on their experience. They're like, oh, wow. we come from a church five times this size. You're like, holy cow! So wow, a lot of that comes down to perspective. And I I did I would love to know your thoughts on these. Then by the way, because I didn't have this prepared, but I did. It, just while you were talking, I Google searched, uh, are we okay with worship concerts? Oh, uh-huh, good. A Gospel Coalition article came up, and I won't read. Uh, I, 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 get, I know. Going this, with no. All right. All right. <laughs> no, I, it just, there's three main points. I won't read all of the text in between them, but I'll no. just read the, the points and, uh, and get your reactions. Uh, number one, if we, the congregation, can't hear ourselves, it's not worship. Mm. Number two, if we, the congregation, can't sing along, it's not worship. Number three... If you, the praise band, are the center of attention, it's not worship. Mm. What do you think? I think those are true. Uh, oh, do you? I think so. Okay. But it also, I think they're too, it, it might be a little too minimalistic there. It might be a little too, it's the same thing that I don't understand that Facebook post going around now, like making the big deal about hymnals versus screens. Mm. Like really, it's the hymnal that makes it worshipful? Like, <laughs> is that what we're saying now? So... Yeah. Do I think that they're right when it says you go to a concert and the Hillsong band is the center of attention, therefore it's not worship? Well, it might, they might be the center of attention for me, but not the guy down the row. Hmm. 
Um, the same way when I go, you know, hear a great preacher, that person down the row might be really, you know, get that preacher's really speak like God is really doing something while I'm like, well, I'm just going to hear critique John Piper right now <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Right. And so that that's a dangerous criteria, I think, because a lot of times that's on the listener. That's not on the person putting it out there. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I do get their points. They're not wrong. I'm coming across really wishy-washy. I say you're so really, moderate right now. <laughs> you and I talk about how we'll come across issues where we don't know what we think. And I don't, you would probably think a pastor should know what they think about this one. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because if someone handed me tickets to a Hillsong concert, I'd go. Yeah. And I'd bring my kids. I'm and not, Well, I, I'm not saying, you don't have to say that you're morally outraged by yeah. it to say, I, I think that might be something different, though, than what we understand as worship. I yeah. think they both can coexist. Like, you wouldn't turn down free tickets to a baseball game. doesn't mean you have to believe that the baseball game is worship. Right. You know, you're like, oh, I just know that this is something different. And it's a bunch of people gathered, and we're looking in the same direction. Yeah. But it's not... Church, this is different. It's certainly not church. Can you still have, can you still worship apart from church? I guess that's kind of the question. I think you absolutely can. Yeah. And I don't have enough time to rip into this as much as I want to. Go for it a little bit. You got two minutes. I think the singing along is a, is a total crock. Yeah, I do too. I I think. Even though I said I agree with those, I was more agreeing (laughs) with the last one. (laughs) Yeah. I think you can worship riding your bike. Mm -hmm. I think you can worship looking at a fine piece of art. I think you worship sharing steak and a good bottle of wine with close friends. I, I think when Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whether you walk or lie down, all of that is charged with the grandeur of God. Ooh. I think to limit it just to, uh, hey, these songs need to be singable in our key, and we can't be making much of the band. I get yep. what it's reacting to, yep. but also as a musician, can I just say, I think to knock any musician for a flourish on the piano or a solo on the guitar, that's not worship because that's in any way more than a chord. I'm like, yeah, but God gifted this person yeah. with creativity and skill in this context. Yeah. What if that's part of their worship? I mean, you could make the same thing by like, Oh, that person's showing off by harmonizing. No, no, yeah. God's given them a musical ear and they're expressing it. Now, yeah. this is where it gets tricky. I think you're touching on it. How do I know if this person's playing a riff out of a worshipful heart right. or to draw attention to themselves? Yeah. We don't know. That's the whole point. So like for a Hillsong tour and a concert, knowing like about this much about what it costs to actually run all of those things. I'm okay with the ticket prices. I'm okay mm. with them even making a living doing it. I do want to be really careful though, to not muddy the waters too much when we differentiate between a concert and worship. And I think we've honestly, unfortunately uh, demonized mm-hmm. concerts. We've demonized even the word performance in some ways, to be honest, a sermon is a little bit of performance art. Yep. And we're so quick to say, like, oh, it's not a performance, it's a sermon. You're like, yeah, it's still you. You're not a character. But we don't, in any other part of our lives, stand on a stage with a microphone, you know, and, and like, share from our heart. Like, there is something to the artistry that I think we can celebrate and be enriched together singing these songs, even if it's in an arena. I just think, I think... I'm actually less concerned about a tour like this and more concerned when the local body tries to mimic those things. Oh, that's good. Does man. that make sense? Oh, 100%. Tour, go for it. Make the money. So that, if God's gifted you with these songs and this vision, I'm actually okay with that. It, it, it really starts to frustrate me when churches try to just copy and paste what they yep. saw at a conference for the sake of their local expression. That's the part where it gets tricky. At the me. end of this article, it's exactly what you're talking about. They talk about uh, the hill songization of churches. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Where churches are like, well, that's what we're supposed to do. So we're going to sing every song they do now. And we're going to, pre- yeah, as if I that's totally the formula. That. And it's not, yeah. it's like God's gifted you for a, a particular people, a particular time and place, faithfully care for and shepherd and lead those people. Good. All right. Coming up next, science suggests 
parents are taking parenting just a little bit too far. <laughs> We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. I teed it up a little bit ago. Uh, science suggests parents are taking parenting too far. Which, again, is a caveat. I'm brand new with this parenting thing. Yep. So, like, all disclaimers on the table. I have no idea what I'm doing. So, we're, we're going to read this article. It's kind of how I feel whenever I preach on, like, suffering. <laughs> I'll always say, like, hey, I'm 36. I realize that the suffering in this room is way beyond what, I, what yep. I've actually experienced. Which I think is, is worth stating. You know, an article about parenting. Like, you're definitely a good deal further down the field. Uh, I imagine this will resonate a little differently with you, but uh-huh. there is a certain um, idealism when you're brand new at it. You're like, I'm going to be this kind of pa-. like. Did yeah. you have that sense that you were going to be this oh, kind of parent, and then yeah. and then it wasn't quite that way? <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I w- I shared last week. I just went to California with my oldest daughter, who's now she is now 15, and Madeline and I we had lots of time together, which was just phenomenal. We had lots of time, but one of the funny conversations we had is I described to her how her mother and I parented her differently when she was little Mm. versus her siblings. Right. Totally. And she was like, what do you mean, dad? I'm like, I'm like, Mads, when you were the first as the first child, you might as well have been in a bubble. Like, right. We were like, so hovering and because we didn't know any better and we were reading every book possible, like this theory of parenting and this theory of parenting. And you're like, uh, you just become overwhelmed. Like I'm going to be the perfect parent. Uh, and, and it's just it, it becomes really overwhelming. Uh, and this article that you were uh, uh, touching on, it's from a place called fatherly dot com. Uh, it talks about how um, we feel that in order to raise a successful child, we need to be as tireless and as purposeful as machines. Hmm. According to a recent study by Cornell University, a majority of parents see world consuming hyper engagement as the best method of child rearing. Yikes. And like what, what that becomes, that just becomes completely overwhelming and we get our identity through our kids then, and all sorts of bad things happen when we realize really, uh, you know what? Our, our kids are pretty malleable and they're we're going to mess up. Uh, you know, we're not going to know everything. We're going to figure things out as we go. Uh, it's a it's a wild ride, this whole parenting thing. And that really where the problems become are when I am that helicopter parent or that lawnmower parent or the new one, the snowplow parent where I'm trying to, like, control my kid's life. Right. That's when you get yourself in trouble. Hmm. And that's where you end up having issues with your kids. And so. Uh, like I said, I have no doubt that you're going to be a great parent as your kid gets ah, thanks, older, man. because you get that right. You've seen this, but really, I do, I do now. But I, you know, you will. You think so? Here's the other great thing about parenting: your kids don't go from two to thirteen overnight. Thank like the you Lord. grow with them. Yeah. So you figure out what it's like to parent a two year old, and then uh, as he's figuring out what it's like to be four, you're figuring out what it's like to parent a four year old, right. and so on and so on. Uh, and you begin to realize, like, there's some just some real basic things about parenting. Love your kids unconditionally. Uh, give them discipline when they need it. Be there. Be present. Right. Presence is like the biggest thing you can give your kids. Help them understand who Jesus is. Help them grow in the faith. 
and keep them alive. <laughs> like, don't be a moron. That's a good charge. Here's, here's a good charge. <laughs> here's, here's my parenting philosophy. Don't be a moron. And otherwise, you're good to go. <laughs> See, but the, but the problem is if people's metrics of what is and isn't moronic is, is so totally vast. Like, I'm reading this article. Nobody wants to over-parent. If anyone thought what they were doing was over-parenting, they wouldn't do it. What they think they're doing is the appropriate level of protection or guidance or bumpers. Everyone thinks they're doing right. the best for their kids, I think. I, and there's a certain level of self-awareness that knows we can't do it perfectly all the time. But everyone thinks their methodology is the best. Right. Even, you know, this is sort of like marriage 101, but you're both bringing your perceived ideas of what a family looks like. And then you're now merging them together. Like what time is dinner and how much do yeah. you vacation and who pay, pays for what? And who, you know what I mean? Like all you're learning all of that. And then you throw kids in the mix. My, my question is how do you know? Cause the article talks a lot about when we over parent, it's not just that like, Hey, it's stressing you out as the parent. You're, you're actually setting your kids up at risk yes. for developing legitimate anxiety disorders. And that's why this is a big deal, right? It says right. here, Overinvolvement was a significant predictor of child anxiety at age nine, even when baseline anxiety was controlled for. Like, that's where this becomes a big deal. Your anxiety and your overinvolvement and your controllingness as a parent, uh, even if you're doing it for the right reasons, right? That will negatively affect your kid. Like, that's the irony of this is that actually overinvolvement's the issue. Rarely is underinvolvement the issue. Well, and again, it's not just that. It's, you know, it's. It's screen time yep. and it's chemicals in our chicken and it's, I mean, it's dyes in the fabric. It's all of it. Like, I think that all of that contributes to sort of this like frantic, like I, I read an article recently and said, um, the global average breaths per minute is six. So in and out once every 10 seconds, Okay. the average breaths per minute in the United States is 24. And the article was sort of linking this idea to how stressed we are as a country for real leads to this rapid breathing, which actually constricts blood flow to the brain. And this, this one doctor was saying, oh, yeah, we get like 60 percent of our energy from our breathing. And if our average is that far out of whack with the rest of the country, is there something else going on mm. that isn't just caffeine consumption and screen addiction? I think there's more going on. So what word would you give to parents that are saying? I don't know if I'm overparenting. I'm just a stressful person or nope, what I'm doing is is spot on, but you're looking at their kid and they're starting to get a little a little jittery. Yeah. Like how would you help parents better self-assess whether or not they're overdoing it? So, one, and this would I I'm even before I say this, I understand that this would be difficult, but do you have people in your life that you feel confident could be honest with you without yeah. you getting insulted, right? Yeah, totally. It's a really deep relationship. If I could say to you, "Hey man, your parenting's kind of a little <laughs> hyper right now." Like that's going to take a but large would you amount respond of trust. Well to that if someone said that to you? It depends who the person yeah, is, that's right? True. And that's so, true. um but that would be one way of doing it. You know, ask yourself some very simple questions. Uh, are you so over-involved as a parent that you can't ever go out with your spouse? Like, do you have any time alone with your spouse or is every waking moment of your day other than work involved in your kid's life? Yeah. Do your kids seem stressed out? Uh, Can your kids make a decision for themselves, right? Do do they ever get to pick out their clothes? Do they ever, uh, will they use the example in this article about like, uh, moms and dads who always choose who their kids are going to play with. Hmm. Well, that makes sense when your kid is two years old, but what about when your kid's 10 years old? Right. Like, can your kids make mistakes? Like, right. I think there's it, a lot of it subjective, right? Like if my kid messes up on the ball field, do I think it's 
a representation of me as a parent or these types of things. Yeah. And uh, and your kids are good reflectors. If they seem really anxious and stressed out around you, it's probably because you're making them really anxious and stressed out. Well, yeah, that's a good point. So, so none of these are easy, but part of it, that, it just yeah. takes some really good self-assessment to actually think about these things and to realize, do you actually believe that that you've got some freedom here that your kid uh, can grow up and that it's not all about you, that your kid's well-being is not always going to be all about you? And it does kind of end by saying um, children do need support. Countless studies have demonstrated that unreliable parents raise kids with worse outcomes. So Mm -hmm. the normalizing response to intensive parenting is not uh, a backlash. It's a strategic mellowing or if parents prefer to think about it in these terms, a more tactical approach. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's kind of what you were just saying, like, just be intentional and discuss together. And this is honestly, if I could just say that for me, a lot of the beauty of marriage, because my wife and I, our wiring is very different and we kind of help each other meet a little bit more in the middle where we see, you know, completely differently on topics or approaches. Like I think there is this healthy middle ground that we're, we're still figuring out and we'll probably continue to figure out for the rest of our lives. Like that's, you know, that's part of the fun, but, but realizing like, Oh, you're a little more lax on this. You're a little more strict on that. Like, being tactical, being strategic, and having touch points, and not just autopilot. Yes. And I think that's where a lot of this article is say, hey, if you just default to helicopter parent and then never recalibrate, like that could eventually have some pretty uh, some pretty dire effects. And to just be mindful, have you know, have check ins the way that you do with your own body. Make yes. sure, hey, are we still parenting with the same the the philosophy and methodology that we want to and and being strategic about that and hopefully you have the trust and the love as husband and wife that you can say these yeah I mean, totally to to not critique but to talk about each other's parenting uh, methods as a husband and wife that's a minefield yeah that's a minefield so show be. each other grace and but it's going to produce such great fruit yeah totally agree all right well coming up next the way that we end the show every single day. Is just some wacky <laughs> interweb explosions, right? <laughs> Stories we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, that sound can only mean one thing, and that means... It's crazy time. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy time. Wow, that was almost singing. How many times have you almost sung on this show? Probably more than we know. Really? Crazy time. All right, keep going. I'll, I, no, can ride this, I can ride this out for a full <laughs> segment. Just Brian doing different voices. People just joining us are like, is this how they end the show? Oh, it sounds crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, sounds that crazy. seems fitting. All right, so here's the disclaimer. At the end of every show, uh, a bunch of stories that Keith Conrad, our executive producer, the executive producer of the show, Finds, selects, prints them, puts them face down on the on the desk. We've not seen them. We've also not heard the sound effects. I haven't. Have you gotten any backlash yet? Has no. anyone? No one's like wagged a finger like Brian. No, Brian from that not, was, not since the first day. <laughs> did we have a really dark one the first day? No. Do you remember the very first show we did was the one with uh, with the um, Carmax and the oh kids yeah, and, and we got a call in. I got a little negative feedback on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me and her are getting coffee later, actually. So, uh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> All right, Brian. She's going way to run him over with the bus. That wow, was great. Oh, boy. Why don't you kick us off? England. Sure. Dalai Lama says a female successor must be attractive or people won't want to look at her face. Oh, jeez. Dalai Lama this. said this? <laughs> oh. want to look at her face. That's not the good. Dalai Lama has suggested that any female that succeeds him as the Buddhist leader must be attractive despite receiving backlash. 
for similar comments he made in 2015. Really? In a wide-ranging interview with the BBC, the guru made a series. I already know what's coming. It's Caddyshack is coming, right? Oh, probably. Made a series of additional controversial remarks touching on migration in Europe, the Chinese government, and the first two years of President Trump's term. He went on to say that uh, a female successor must be very attractive. Otherwise, not much use. Hey, Lama. <laughs> that was it. Not much use. It's problematic. It's, tell me there's like a language barrier. Is there something we're missing there? I, the I Dalai know. Lama said this? Yeah. Honestly, I don't. I don't even think you I can laugh at that one. That one makes me upset. All I did, right, I did laugh. <laughs> you did. It's fine. It's okay. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin bus driver stops to rescue turtle in the road. That's hmm. nice. Wisconsin bus driver was caught on camera saving the life of a turtle that was racing a hare. Just kidding. Was slowly crossing the road in the path of another oncoming bus. The Milwaukee County Transit System shared surveillance footage of the bus driver Yangnam Yangnam. Those are the same. Names okay. <laughs> it's the same first Stop, last name. That's stopping awesome. the vehicle on an Oak Creek road and getting out to carry the turtle to the side of the road. A second bus appears moments later and drives over the spot that was formerly occupied by the turtle. If I don't save the wheat turtle, you will. <laughs> that was that was well read, Ian. Ian. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I feel like that's not appropriate for you to say, Brian. This is this is cul- culturally. It's a, yeah. Right. You're laughing at the Dalai Lama. You're laughing at this guy's family I'm name. I'm at what the Dalai Lama said. All right, Brian Fromm. So number three, last this one day on hurts the show. Me. This one hurts me. Uh, New York, the Mets apologize after including two living players in memorial montage during 1969 World Series Holy reunion. Cow. I actually watched this in live time as it was happening. Did you realize it as it was happening? Uh, no, but I read okay. about it. The New York <laughs> Mets have been forced to apologize after featuring two living players in a memorial tribute montage to the team's 1969 World Series winning team. During a ceremony to honor the 50-year anniversary of the Miracle Mets, the club incorrectly featured 76-year-old Jim Gosger and 70-year-old Jesse Hudson alongside deceased members of the squad. The Mets immediately attempted to contact the two and apologize. Uh, However, the former said that he would not answer his phone. I'm not dead! He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better! No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. (laughs) Timeless. It's so good. All right, this one's going to hurt you too, man. I'm so sorry. This has not been Brian Fromm's day. Mm. New Jersey. (laughs) I can't even get through this one. It's South Jersey, though. It's South Jersey. Is it? Okay. Fired worker allegedly pepper sprays New Jersey Taco Bell on her way out. (laughs) I don't know why I find this so funny. A woman who was fired from her job at a West Long Branch Taco Bell allegedly set off pepper spray in the restaurant, sickening customers and her former co-workers. Eight employees and two customers were inside the Taco Bell Saturday afternoon when the woman allegedly dispersed dispersed yeah the chemical into a back storage room while she was waiting for someone to come pick her up. She had just been terminated for being late and calling out too many times after working there for, quote, a few months. The woman tore up her... Termination papers ignored a manager's request for her to wait in the lobby and then sprayed the pepper spray, the manager said. Yo quiero Taco Bell. All right, last one is Utah. This is dark but funny. <laughs> oh, no. A woman falsely reported that her husband killed her, police say. Huh? A woman who allegedly thought her husband was cheating on her was arrested Tuesday after falsely reporting that her husband had killed her. Oh, wow. Rebecca Nielsen, of 44, was arrested for investigation of criminal mischief and making a false police report. The unusual incident started at 2 a.m. when a woman called 911 after receiving text messages from a person purporting to be Nielsen's husband stating that he, quote, had shot his wife and didn't know what to do. The woman asked the man if he was serious and he responded by text that he wasn't joking. 
the police officers surrounded the home. Uh, that's when Nielsen walked up to officers on the scene. Investigate, investigators trying to unravel what was going on learned that Nielsen and her husband had gotten into an argument because the husband was texting another woman. Nielsen allegedly smashed her husband's laptop, took the phone, and left, and then called the police. She's terrifying. Yeah, that's very fitting. Wow, it is definitely a holiday week it here at the Common Good. Is. That my, was off the charts my goodness. Right there. Hopefully, you were able to stick with us through the insanity. Join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.